Good morning, Theo 102. Good Monday morning to you. I hope you had a good weekend. Yes. Yeah? I, yes. Did you have a good weekend? I did. I spent a lot of time with my kids, which was super fun. How about you? Oh, that's good. Um, same. My oldest daughter had a spectacular show that she was in, and so Aww. we did a lot of like going to that and ferrying people back and forth. So Are you a stage good. dad? Okay, I'm pretty calm as a stage dad. So if you don't know, I have a background in theater. Any theater majors out there? Yes. Oh, our, I was like 12. Our people, we love yeah. you. Um, but my oldest daughter is involved in a lot of theater stuff, and I've done a good enough job at like not being the theater dad that she explains things to me as if I have no background whatsoever. Aww. So I've swung in the opposite direction. Oh, she's so. teaching you. That's she really wonderful. is. Yeah. That's great. All right. Well, we have a few announcements for you all before we get started this morning. Right. And so the biggest one is kind of about our rhythm for this week and the next few weeks. So uh, if you've looked at the Theo schedule, you'll notice that we meet in here today. You already got that down because you're here. But then we're also going to be in here on Wednesday as well. Uh, there's a mid-semester break winter break on Friday, so you don't yes. have any classes. So we'll be in here on Wednesday, not in your sections. And then we're gonna keep that rhythm up Monday, Wednesday in here with no Friday meeting for the next several weeks. So you're really gonna need to pay attention to the schedule. Along with that, you also need to be reading Simply Jesus and the biblical passages. You're not gonna have that weekly section to kind of process through those, and it's gonna be real easy for you to just kind of put that aside. But when the midterm comes up in just a few weeks, you're going to be cramming and trying to read all that information because we're going to draw from uh, that book for some of the midterm exam questions. Yes. And then, oh, you want to go ahead? Well, speaking of, yes. speaking of midterm, the, um, the schedule, the reading schedule and the course schedule is updated on the website uh, between now and the final exam. So up through Wednesday, March 4th. So if you want to just be a, a big time overachiever and work ahead, we, you're, you're more than welcome to do that. It is available to you on the website. And also your section leaders should be reaching out to you in one way or another with some sort of offer of coffee, um, opportunity to hang out and chat with you at some point during this Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday pattern. So. We don't want you to feel completely hung out to dry by your section leader. Nope, nope, you won't be. We are um, with you in spirit, and we are praying for you as, you as you study. Okay, so today we are adding another line to the creed. We are adding, he will come, and he will come to judge the living and the dead to the creed. I'm excited about this. I like this topic a lot. In fact, Dr. Doak uh, and I were just talking about this, and he said he was talking about it with his daughter. She's about 10 years old, and she said um, to him, she was really glad that this is the week that they were going, we were going to be going over that topic because it's so confusing. And I was like, this is a religion professor in the making right, right. here. Yes, she's, she loves it, and I'm, I'm excited about it too. And I'm excited because we have a great lecture today Dr. Brian R. Doak will be delivering the lecture yeah. this morning. <laughs> yes. We are excited about Dr. Doak. Uh, you know him pretty well by, uh, by this point in time. What's one fact? I'm putting Dr. Campbell on the, on the spot here. What's one fact that students may or may not know about Dr. Doak that might help them understand him a little better? 
I'm sure they want to know his middle name. But I'm not going to tell you. I, I think there's a lot <laughs> of things I could say about Dr. Doak that are super interesting, but I don't have permission to share any of them with you. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to hold those close to the vest, I think. He's a mountain climber. If you follow him on Instagram, you can see cool mountain climbing pictures. That is true. I only live vicariously through those pictures. You'll never see me on a mountaintop. Okay, so let us, before we welcome Dr. Brian R. Doak to the stage, let us recite the creed together up to this point. And um, I've got a little printed oh, out version if you'd like to great, share with me, Dr. Campbell, because it's getting a little long now and I memorized the wrong version and I always mess it up. <laughs> okay, are you ready? All right. I, I believe, believe in God, God the, the Father, Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. It is my fault. He is seated at the, at the right, right hand of, of the Father. And, and he, he will come, come to judge the living and the, and the dead. dead. That one's on me. <laughs> Would you welcome Dr. Brian Welcome Doke. Dr. Brian R. Duke. One of the most mysterious scenes in the Bible happens in Exodus 34. By this point in the Bible, God has created the world. The world has been created good. God has had some problems with humans who disobeyed him in the garden and then also afterward. We'll come back to that. God has given a covenant or a promise to a specific family, Abraham and Sarah, and all of their descendants that he was going to provide for them land and kids, but they end up getting stuck in Egypt. They have trouble having the kids. It seems like the whole covenant is in peril. Finally, they have the kids, but there are so many that the Egyptians decide to enslave them, and now they're stuck, and God comes and judges Egypt, judges Egypt hard in a way that really is striking for a lot of Bible readers. Like, is this a fair way to judge the Egyptians. But I will say, and this is point number one right off the bat, judgment, our theme for today, is very much like that. People win and people lose. And it's hard. Those of you on sports teams know what this is like. You go out onto the field of play, the court, the grass, whatever it is, somebody wins and somebody loses. You know, and there are these cliche moments in the locker room today, right, like afterward, like, oh, we're all winners here today. And it's like, no, we're not, <laughs> right? Like, no, we're not. There was no moral victory. We're not all winners. Somebody just lost out there. And in the Exodus story, Egypt loses. And God's people win, and God brings them out. They don't just get to escape having any kind of ruler, though, or any kind of laws. God is their new ruler. God is their master. And he takes them out into the wilderness for a hard period of testing. And he gives them the law. Now we get to Exodus 34. Moses has an, an amazing request to make of God. He says, Lord, will you please, I've been doing this thing with these people, it's been crazy, will you please just show me your glory? Could I see you? And surprisingly, maybe, this God who's been so hidden, so frightening at times, says, yeah, okay, go stand in the cleft of a rock on the side of this huge and terrifying mountain, and I'll tell you something. So Moses goes and hides himself, and the Lord pronounces his name, the Lord, the Lord, I want to read this moment from Exodus chapter 34, straight out of the Bible, if that's okay. 
really beginning in Exodus 33. But then God, you know, comes to him and, and proclaims this. This is Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for this thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Up to this point, in the Bible, we had gotten very few descriptions, especially from God directly, about a most important question. Who is God? What is God like? This statement about God in Exodus 34 is actually really important in the Bible. It's so important, in fact, that many other biblical authors quote it. Like, there are quotes from this in the book of Joel and Nahum and all over the Psalms. And in the book of Jonah, this quote plays an important role with echoes in many other books. Forgiving sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. That's, that's a kind of a weird paradox, for me at least. If you're going to forgive sin, why not just clear the guilty? Isn't that what forgiving sin is? If you sin, you're guilty. So he forgives sin, but he, he's not, he's absolutely not going to clear the guilty. We even have some hint of something that looks like a generational curse, visiting iniquity upon, you know, the children's children down to some generation. We might have trouble, I know I certainly have trouble, imagining a figure like that a figure who could be so just and so righteous that they could hold together that tension, being perfectly merciful on the one hand, but enacting perfect justice on the other hand. And, and we've seen probably so many of us, so many bad models of this in our lives. People who maybe were too strict on the judgment or people who were overly merciful and could not bring themselves to make the right judgment. This sort of thing to me, at, at, maybe at my worst moments, makes God almost seem like a fairy tale like it's not even real, like it's just a kind of a big screen projection on what, of what we hope a God could be like or what we hope some image of perfection could be like in this world, the kind of best that's out there in the universe. My experience with judgment sometimes, though, is also like this. It seems kind of fake, like pie in the sky, like way out there, like it'll never happen, until it does. And then when it does, it really does. It's like I learned suddenly that I was on the hook the whole time, and I didn't know it. Our creed portion for today says, He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I assume that Jesus' position in the creed at the right hand of the Father is at the same time, on the one hand, an image of Jesus' equality with the Father in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I assume, though, it's also an image of power, of Jesus' role as a judge. The right hand in biblical imagery uh, is a position of agency, and of movement of decision. I've got to tell you, our judgment theme this week, I'm seizing upon this word judgment, is a huge theme in the Bible and in the Christian spiritual tradition. Huge. Like, it's massive. Like, if you wanted to do something like read the whole Bible and come up with a single theme for, like, what could be a biblical theology, like a single theme that would encompass everything that we have. There are a lot of worthy candidates for this, and people have written all kinds of books. A biblical theology of covenant, Love, hope. I'll tell you though, one word that could play this role really well would be the word judgment. Judgment is everywhere in the biblical tradition, which raises a problem for us today in the year 2020, which is 
It's not clear at all that judgment plays any significant role in the spiritual lives of most American Christians today. We don't hear a lot about it. So I want to I ask first, why is that? Like, where exactly is the disconnect? Sociologists and scholars of religion have tried to study this and write about it. In fact, there's one prominent Christian sociologist. His name is Christian Smith. Um, he's a professor at Notre Dame. Back in 2005, he wrote a book um, which was called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. It's a little bit dated now, um, but he's, he's updated the research on blogs and so on, and I think it still is pretty relevant. They did thousands of interviews with people just your age, but it's not, I don't think it's necessarily just about 18-year-olds. It's, it's also a broader cultural thing and also older people too, so I think we're all kind of on the hook for this. And they came up with a term that they think describes what our basic shared, even if it's not true for every one of us, our kind of basic public shared sense of spirituality is. He called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Which works something like this. What's the moralistic part? The moralistic part is like, God wants you to be a good little boy or a good little girl, okay, uh, and wants you to be nice to people, and good people go to heaven when they die. Therapeutic. God is a great therapist in the sky, and God really, there's really not much that God wants from you. What God mostly wants from you, more than anything else, is God just wants you to feel really good about yourself. Like, God is like your second grade teacher. Like, the goal is self-esteem, okay? So it's moralistic, it's therapeutic. God can come and solve some problems for you and soothe you with therapeutic benefits if you, if you, if you feel you need that. Um, indeed, the word God in this moralistic therapeutic deism is basically a cipher for whatever you just happen to think is best in the world or whatever you think is, like, good or success. So, like, when something goes well in your life, it's almost like you, it's like you call that God. Like, that's God. Thanks, God. And then deism, moralistic therapeutic deism. God created the world but is not actually actively involved in it except maybe at those few moments when you call on him to help you have a success. Um, especially though God is not present for any way that would be inconvenient for you or would make you otherwise uh, uncomfortable. I mean, from a Christian theological perspective, maybe there's just some, there are such obvious critiques of what moralistic therapeutic deism is. Although others who have written about this have said, you know what, actually, whether it's good, bad, or ugly theologically, it's a pretty good kind of American public, civil, civic type religion that we could all share in a very diverse place where there's no greater sin than offending people, and where there's no greater problem than making people around you feel awkward or uncomfortable. Moralistic therapeutic deism is actually a perfect kind of like American group religion because nobody really has to put anyone out too far, and God is definitely not going to be involved in anything that would be ugly or weird or cause a problem. You don't want to, in other words, I think it's, it's just kind of uncool to believe in something too hard. So moralistic therapeutic deism is kind of perfect for that stance. Totally absent from this vague popular view of God, however, is any sense of judgment. And there are major problems with this theologically and even practically. I mean, here's a problem with this lack of judgment right away. We also know that many of us, I bet many of you in this room, and I include myself in this group, care a lot about justice. Does anyone care about justice? Does anyone care about, like, helping the poor, the weak, about releasing the oppressed from prison, prison reform? I mean, just fill in the blank with, like, so many things. Do you want justice in the world? Here's a question. How do you think that's going to happen, actually? In order to achieve ju justice, cosmic, political, social, at every level, 
we're going to have to have judgment. Here's a slogan you can remember. Without judgment, there is no justice. Without judgment, there is no justice in the world. Judgment and justice go together. And then, in the words of the creed, is also a hint of judgment, not only here and now, but in the afterlife. Did you notice that in the creed? He will come to judge the living and the dead. The afterlife is hard to talk about. It's hard to think about. And maybe it's even like, eh, heaven is like, we're pretty sure heaven's going to be good, so who even cares what it'll be like? It'll just be awesome. But like, hell? I don't know. It gets awkward really fast. It's hard to know how to characterize that, how to talk about it, or even to make really hard judgments spiritually about what it means. Maybe it's the case that past generations of Christians had an easier time thinking about the afterlife than we do today. Imagine, thought experiment time, okay? What if you were living a thousand years ago, in the year 1020 AD? You're, you're firmly in the medieval period. Let's say you're living in like, I don't know, like rural Germany or something, whatever that was then, okay? You are a farmer. You herd animals or something along those lines. You probably started working, doing manual labor full-time at age nine, Okay. And you had a very particular experience with life physically in terms of pain and suffering. If you fell and bashed your front tooth out, good luck. That's your smile now for life, right? That's just you. If you need glasses and you can't see, good luck with that. You're probably sick all the time. In fact, ethnographers who study this period think that maybe the average lifespan was around 38 or 39 years old. So you're well past midlife. You're definitely getting there right now. You're bored? Read a book. Wait, you can't read and it's dark all the time, okay? You have appendicitis? You're dead. You're having a baby that needs a C-section, some kind of special intervention? You're dead. So is your child, right? In a world like this, if there is no God, and, it, and it certainly if there is no afterlife, life is a cruel, sick joke. Life is, in a sense, too short not to be obsessed with the afterlife. You are in a real, you know, atheism does not thrive in an environment like this, okay? In a very real way, you're waiting to die. You're not trying to maximize and strategize and build your brand on the gram. Like, it's not like that. Eternity is looming before you and it's coming fast. Now we've gotten so good at medicine and entertaining each other that our current world could even start to feel what a lot of people in past eras or maybe in other places in the world today would think is a lot like heaven, except that we know we have our own problems, right? I was sort of binge-watching recently a Netflix series, very disturbing series called Black Mirror. Has anyone ever seen a Black Mirror episode? I noticed a kind of sub-theme in Black Mirror. It's not every episode, but many episodes are actually about the afterlife. There's an episode called USS Callister, which is kind of like a weird Star Trek knockoff, but it, with like very disturbing afterlife implications. There's one called San Junipero, very moving story, but also like very disconcerting about what it might mean to have your life propped up artificially, like through a computer. The one that disturbed me the most, I think, was called Be Right Back. It was about a woman and, and a boyfriend, and, the, and, and they're thinking about having kids, maybe getting married, and the boyfriend tragically dies in a car crash. And her friend, in, her, in the depth of the grief, the friend signs, signs the, the, uh, the woman up for a service that will kind of like take all of his words that he's ever written over text or memories and sort of make like a chat bot out of him, like a really realistic one that just says things that he would say, and it's so realistic, and she wants to be with him so much now that he's dead that she even orders an upgraded version of this which is like a full-sized, really functioning, lifelike robot of him, which just kind of works like a normal human and says the things he would say, and he's resurrected, sort of, okay? 
things do not go well. I won't do any plot spoilers, but it's a dystopian image. The idea of living forever, my point is, in these visions would not even be desirable. Like, who even wants to think about it? It's actually terrorizing. And the only judgment you could imagine in that Black Mirror world would be not being hip to the right kind of technology or not having the right kind of connections or friends or foes who could prop you up or hurt you in a weird artificial intelligence existence. But Christians, those of us who call Jesus Lord, we have a better set of resources than this. Our tradition is richer. I want to suggest that Scripture tells a story about judgment beginning in the Garden of Eden and reaching its climax in the person of Jesus and his kingdom as the ultimate judge of the universe. Now that's huge. How are we going to do this in the time remaining? Okay, I've got a way. But by nature, a topic like this, like so many topics you've seen, right, in this lecture series, it's incomplete. We're going to have to keep talking about it. Rather than talking in the abstract, then, I want, I want to do it concretely through stories and themes that we find in the Bible. And here I'm going to pull a Dr. Garcia. I'm going to flip this. Can I do it? Oh, yes, it's happening. Yes, I know. It, it adds a little bit of drama to the lecture, like, is it going to work, you know? This is one public speaking tip for you. People who are watching public speakers, they always want to perceive that the speaker is taking some kind of risk. Like, oh, is it going to work? I don't know. Can he do it? Okay, so if you're public speaking, one thing you got to do is take a risk. Walk out from the podium, flip the board, okay? I'm going to use the terms garden, mountain, prophet, and king to organize what I think are some crucial biblical moments for us to think about judgment, okay? So let's start with the garden. Let's go back to the garden. Gardens are nice. Let's go back there. And I'm using garden as a cipher for really Genesis 1 through 11, those primal stories that describe humanity's first moments with God. Remember there that the people were told not to eat of a particular tree, and they did eat. And here we see established a pattern that Scripture actually repeats many times. It's a pattern by which we live our lives, whether we recognize it or not. That pattern is creation, sin, exile, and restoration. Creation, sin, exile, restoration. And Genesis 1 through 11 moves through this pattern. We see it first with Adam and Eve. But really we see it also with the flood, creation, sin, something's wrong, exile, there's going to be a consequence. People are going to have to be kicked out of where they are. But then there's some form of restoration. Adam and Eve do the sin, they do the thing, they get kicked out of the garden, but God provides something for them, clothing, and they have a way forward in life. The flood is a tough one. Oh, I know, I remember back in the fall when we were reading and talking about the flood, just like the tension, like, really? God commits a genocide on the human race? That's horrible. Creation, sin, exile. But there is restoration. It might seem really, really thin, really mean, the kind of restoration, but it is there. Noah and his family are spared, and, and, Genesis, and Genesis chapter 9 um, explodes with imagery of a new creation, of God's wind blowing back into the earth, bringing things back to life. Tower of Babel, another story like this. Creation, sin, people gather, and they try to somehow cross some divine boundary. It's a very ambiguous story. Exile, they're spread apart. But restoration, where does that story lead in Genesis? It leads directly to the person of Abraham and Sarah and the great faith that they display in the covenant to come back and make it happen. God judges, but also provides a way for life to go on. Moment number one, setting up the pattern. Moment number two, we're going to call this one the mountain. Oops, how do you spell mountain? There we go. 
God doesn't just take the people out of Egypt in the Exodus to just lead them straight, straight to where they're going to be. He has a stop for them first. It's at the mountain. The mountain is Mount Sinai. God intends to give people his law and his judgments about how the world is to work. And I want to read parts of this story. This is in Exodus chapter 19 because I think it's so instructive for thinking about God's judgment and how God appears to his people. They come up to the mountain, and it's very striking. This has always been one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I don't know why. I just think it's, it's almost comical, but it's so dark. This is Exodus 19, verse 10 and following. When Moses had told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes. Everyone, wash your clothes. And prepare for the third day, because on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Be careful not to go up to the mountain or to even touch the edge of it. Any who touch the mountain shall be put to death. No hands shall touch them, but they shall be stoned or shot with arrows. Whether animal or human being, they shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may go up to the mountain. On the morning of the third day, there was lightning and thunder as well as a thick cloud on the mountain and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. I mean, just try to imagine this scene, right? God's like, here's my mountain. I'm going to give you laws. By the way, don't touch my mountain or I'm going to kill you. Don't touch my mountain. Don't touch it. Also, there's going to be a deafening sound so loud, so loud that people will physically be trembling at the foot of the mountain. And God is like, yes, This is my proper introduction to people, right? This moment, this is when the people first meet God. I want you to consider the role of fear in a story like that. Fear. This theme of the fear of the Lord is a really important one in Scripture, and it's predicated on God's holiness. The idea that God is set apart. That there's something that's actually sacred that just can't be trampled on and touched by anyone at any time. The fear of the Lord plays a huge role in Scripture. Proverbs 1 says the fear of the Lord is actually the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes and Job resound with statements of the fear of the Lord. Psalm 112, which I just heard read in church yesterday, begins, Happy are those who fear the Lord. What role does fear play in your spiritual life? I wonder if we need to rehabilitate a healthy, godly notion of fear for Christian spirituality. Fear is a core emotion. It is holy and productive, when we are afraid of the right things for the right reasons. We need to order our fears in inappropriate ways, just like we would any of our other experiences or emotions before God. Should we fear God's judgment? Yeah. If we're, if we're unrepentant and in open rebellion to God, that would be an appropriate thing to fear. But for those who proclaim Jesus as Lord and live in Christ in the biblical language in that reality, then no, we don't fear judgment. Though we would be, I mean, I think I would be very serious to consider how I order my life appropriately to listen to Jesus' teaching and voice. That God on the mountain is not some old-timey God who passed away. He was kind of like the mean God of the Old Testament. He, you know, he was a father figure, but like a lot of father figures, he had some problems, and he had a son, and he kind of mellowed out later. Like, that's not the biblical story. That God on the mountain is the God now. The mountain is still the mountain. It hasn't gone anywhere, and you haven't gone anywhere, and I haven't gone anywhere. 
In Exodus 20 then, following this bizarre scene, God speaks judgments from the mountain. This is the so-called Ten Commandments. In the Bible story, actually, this is something that's easy to miss. God's actually speaking the commandments not to Moses alone. He's speaking them out loud to the entire community, just like trumpet blasts of words. The people's response, are they like, yeah, God, good one, you know, good law. They tremble. And Moses declares that the purpose of the display was to put the fear of God on them. The people stand at a distance. Why? Because God is holy. You don't just run right up there. It doesn't work like that. Next word, the prophet. The prophet. Prophets do a lot of things in the Bible. They encourage people who are downtrodden and who are miserable to have confidence. They speak for God. They're political advisors. They see into the future and they dream dreams. But they also have another role. A role we would do well to embrace and reclaim and acknowledge in our time. There are times, this is true for me, I'll just put it in the common plural, times when we commit sins, we oppress the vulnerable, we just ruin things generally and we feel no guilt at all. The problem here is not that we feel bad in the moralistic therapeutic deism model, oh, I feel so bad, I need to feel better. The problem is I don't feel anything nearly like bad enough and I don't know how to feel bad. It's like I haven't been taught. And the prophet comes to lead people into an experience of their own sin and pain that they are not feeling. The prophet comes to lead people into disorientation and to tell them all is not right. Sometimes even through the symbolism of their own bodies and their own pain. The prophet Hosea, for example, is asked to marry a woman that will not be faithful to him, that will cheat on him, in order that he can feel the pain of what God feels like to be spiritually cheated on by Israel, worshiping other gods. The prophet Ezekiel is told to lie on his side for like hundreds of days straight, which must be a painful kind of contortion, opening up sores and lesions in the body. You can only imagine how that feels. In order so that he can know and people can know by observing him, the pain of Israel's iniquity. The prophet Jeremiah stands in the gate of the temple. I was reading this recently. This is such a fascinating passage. It's like picture church day. You know that thing like at the church door where everyone's streaming in and like, you know, there are people handing out bulletins? It's hard to visualize the temple, so maybe you could visualize a church. He stands there right where people are streaming in and says, oh, look at all of you, saying, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He mocks them. Maybe, maybe even mocking a chant that people would have made while going into the temple. This is in Jeremiah 7, if you want to read it. And he says, what do, you, what do you think you're doing here? I will let you live in this place if you treat the poor justly, if you worship God and do not worship other gods. But do you think you can come in here and be safe when you worship other gods, when you trample people and when you spill blood? He's like, God said, I, I wanted this place to be a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And Jesus in the New Testament actually takes up these exact words in the temple when he goes to drive people out with a whip who are doing the wrong thing there. Maybe exploiting people or just sinning on some other level. The people were like, God will always bless us. Hashtag blessed. Jeremiah's like, no, no he won't. Absolutely not. The, your state of being here in peace is, is predicated on your behavior. And that's a prophet. Even though heaven and hell, by the way, are not explicit themes in a lot of the prophets, indeed, most of the Bible goes by without really talking about heaven or hell in any kind of detailed way, which is a little confusing. 
because you'd like to see, you know, heaven and hell as a theme really early on. There are a couple of prophetic chapters that really do get into this. And you've got to hang on because it's a wild ride. Isaiah chapter 66, this grand theological vision at the center of the Old Testament prophets, has a scene at the end in which those who rebel against God have their bodies being eaten by worms and burning forever. And there you, there you go. You get left with that verse. In fact, the Jewish reading tradition for the book of Isaiah, if you read Isaiah 66 out loud in the synagogue, you actually have to read the last verse, but then read another verse from earlier in that chapter after the last verse so that the book doesn't end on that note. Because it's just seen as like too gruesome, too harrowing of a note to end on. Daniel chapter 12, another prophet, speaks of the resurrection of the dead at the very end. Some people waking up to everlasting life and some who experience shame and contempt. The prophets remind us of this. There will be blood. There will be blood. God is not joking around. I want to ask myself this now and ask you just on this sub-point. Who is a prophet in your life? Who's a prophet in my life? Whom will I allow to actually speak to me those hard words and to help me feel that pain of judgment so that I can change? Whom will I let speak to me like that to help me to feel bad about what I should really feel bad about? Or have I shut out anyone from my life who might criticize me? We do this sometimes, right? Judgment is hard. And now, the king. The garden, the mountain, the prophet, the king. There's so many other ways that we could categorize all this. This is just one way of thinking about it for now. We come to the New Testament. I know this has been very Old Testament heavy, but we've been talking about Jesus these past few weeks, and so I want to take us back a little bit. I don't want to imply, though, by the way, again, back to the theme I'd raised earlier, that the Old Testament is all about judgment and the New Testament is about salvation. The Old Testament is about salvation and mercy just as it is about judgment, and the New Testament is about judgment just as it is about salvation and mercy. In fact, and this is crucial as we think about Jesus as judge on the cross in particular, judgment and salvation go together. Okay? So I offered this statement earlier, there's no justice without judgment, there's also no salvation without judgment. Justice, judgment, and salvation go together. Christians believe that history has been moving in a direction and we're going somewhere. We're not just running around in circles like Israel did in the wilderness. We're going toward a promised land. The world's false and temporary schemes are going to be revealed for what they are. This judgment is salvation. And Jesus came to sort it out personally in the first century A.D., And the creed affirms, and Christians have always affirmed, that Jesus is actually going to come again to earth to sort it out personally. The details of this have always been a little murky, a little mysterious, maybe even a little haunting. What would it look like for Jesus actually to return to the earth? What does Jesus call us to do exactly in the light of this judgment? There's much now, there's so much we could say about Jesus, but I want to get really simple, taking up some of our assigned reading from this week from Mark chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can just listen to me read. I'll get some of the reading right out of the way for you right away, okay? Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appears and and begins baptizing people, people who come in a ritual of repentance and of forgiveness of sins. 
You should, by the way, if you've been keeping up with the reading here, and he writes simply Jesus, you should recognize terms like son of God and good news in Greek, euangelion, as being actually crucial political words in Jesus' time. We know that emperors, Roman emperors, just before Jesus' life, actually started to take on the title son of God as a title for themselves. And indeed, we have evidence from, in, in the Greco-Roman world from inscriptions that these kings, these Roman empires, emperors, would actually make announcements and call their announcements the, quote, good news, the euangelion. Pronouncements of their own peace and of the salvation that they bring. So words, in, the first, in Jesus' time, words like salvation, peace, son of God, and even kingdom were really important words. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. And as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. Do you notice the idea of being in the wilderness here in the number 40? Israel from the Exodus went out into the wilderness for 40 years to be tempted. Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. I guess 40 years would have been a hard period for Jesus to have been in the wilderness. So 40 days is like a symbolic equivalent to that. Tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts and angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news, the euangelion, the gospel of God, saying, here's what Jesus says. This is Jesus' first sermon in the book of Mark. This is his message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Repent and believe in the good news. Have you ever truly repented in your life of something? Like just got like really in touch with what is going wrong. Like not blaming others or hand-wringing about the mysteries of life and how it's all gone wrong. I mean, there's a place for that. I definitely do that. But not doing that, however many of the mysteries are. Just taking a long and hard and really honest look at your own self and asking, what am I doing wrong right now? What needs to change? There are a lot, there's a lot of biblical language for sin and repentance that judgment brings to light. Maybe the most simplest image of repentance is just to change direction. I was doing this. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, whoop, no, no, no. <laughs> and you go in a completely different direction. Have you repented in your life? Like in a serious way? Some of my own worst spiritual moments, can I just tell you, so many, when I was farthest from God, have come in times of intensely blaming others or refusing to submit myself to judgment. Refusing to repent. I can be so impressive when I'm complaining and blaming everyone. It's, it's really amazing. Here's the thing we need to know for, on our theme for this week, though. And this is something that I, I need to know and need to reclaim in my life as a Christian. Judgment begins with the church. It begins with the faithful. It's not looking out into an impure world of non-Christian sinners. Scripture has a pretty clear message on this, actually. God will first deal with God's own people. There's a passage in 1 Peter 4 that makes this really explicit where the author there says, the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. The book of Joel in the Old Testament speaks really clearly about a day of the Lord. The book of Joel is a book that not many people probably read in the Old Testament, but if you want to get a quick shot, just a couple chapters of like God's judgment, read the book of Joel. It is a tough book. He's like, there is a day of the Lord coming and it is going to be dark. 
The sun and the moon will be blotted out. And where does the judgment begin? It begins at the temple of the Lord. Just like with Jeremiah, he went straight to the temple. There's a pattern there for our lives, right? It can be easy in this politically bifurcated world. There's so much going on. We see so much sin in the world. There's so much that's wrong. And if we have a good moral sense, we will see that. That's, that's good. But if you're like me, you can become so fixated on that out there that you forget that judgment needs to also happen inside here. And that repentance begins with me. My best spiritual moments, though, few though they've been, have not been that outwardly impressive, frankly. They haven't come on a lecture stage. They've come in times of pain and change. Indeed, I remember so vividly how my own Christian life began that way in a real way. As a 19-year-old, I was probably just your age, I shot up out of bed at like 5.30 in the morning. And because of a bunch of circumstances in my life, a bad relationship I was in, a time of depression and just disobedience, I, for some, by some miracle of God's grace, I was able in that early morning in my bed in my parents' basement to submit myself to God's judgment. I just cried out, God, save me. God, change me. And I had to do an about face in some big areas in my life. When we come to God in repentance and when we expose ourselves vulnerably to his judgment, we find something we need so badly. It was something that I found and something I still need to find. We find God's kindness. We find God's mercy. We find forgiveness. Indeed, as Romans chapter 2 puts it, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that makes judgment possible. It makes it possible for us to bear it. Back to the mountain. The Lord, the Lord, merciful, generous, gracious, forgiving sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. When God proclaims these words to Moses on the mountain, Moses has an immediate response. He falls down onto the ground and bows his head. An experience with judgment leads us to worship. God makes a covenant with Moses and the people saying, here are my laws, here are my rules. Moses doesn't eat or drink for 40 days and he comes down and his face is shining. The people can barely even stand to see him. Let me end with another story in the New Testament, one echoing this old story, Matthew chapter 17. Jesus takes two of his disciples and they go up on a mountain. Anytime in the New Testament you see Jesus going up on a mountain, you have to be like, oh my gosh, that's it, that's the mountain, the mountain of the law, the mountain of judgment, Mount Sinai. And he goes up there and it's radiant. You think Moses' face is shining. A voice comes down from heaven. Oh my gosh, it's just like the voice down on Mount Sinai. It's Moses and God and the shining face and the booming voice all over again. And Jesus' three disciples who are with him, they do just like Moses. They fall down on their face. But there's now another divine voice, and it's Jesus' own voice. And I leave you with this word. Jesus, is, Jesus touches his disciples. He says to them, get up. Get up. Do not be afraid. The theme of judgment is heavy, but in Scripture, there is a way forward. Thank you.